my working assumption is that people running the business know more about it than I do. Full stop. I have a bigger title. That doesn't mean I have a bigger brain or better experience or knowledge. Let the experts do their job. But if you see underperformance, okay, you get more deeply involved. From McKinsey's strategy and corporate finance practice, I'm Sean Brown, and welcome to Inside the Strategy Room. That was James Gorman, chairman and chief executive of Morgan Stanley. James, who's a former McKinsey senior partner, has led the global financial services firm for the past 12 years. Today, in the first of a two-part conversation, James shares how he reshaped the organization's strategy following the global financial crisis. He also discusses how being an expert poker player helps him think through resource allocation. James spoke with Vic Malhotra, a senior partner based in our New York office who chairs our America's region. Vic is our firm's longest tenured partner and is the co-author of the new book, CEO Excellence, the mindsets that distinguish the best leaders from the rest. Joining them is Ashit Mehta, a senior partner also based in our New York office who leads our financial services practice in the Americas. Now, here's Vic. Well, James, thank you for agreeing to do this interview. Really appreciate it. Great to be here, Vic and Ashit. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. So I'm going to start out uh, with a a series of questions around setting the direction for Morgan Stanley. Mm -hmm. And, you know, if you kind of look at Morgan Stanley today and compared to 10 years ago, a dozen years ago, or even at the point you became CEO, it's a vastly different organization. Uh, the emphasis on wealth management, what you've done on asset management, the change of mix of businesses on the wholesale side and the like, and the contrast is, is quite stark. How did you think about reimagining what, or imagining what Morgan Stanley was going to be a decade later? Is this something that evolved? How do you think about strategy for this organization? This could be a long podcast. It could be a long podcast. You know, it's, it's, there's, there's sort of several things that, that help frame it. The most obvious is, what is your current condition? Because your strategy is a reflection of where you stand at that point in time. You can have the boldest strategy in the world, but if you're struggling to survive, it doesn't matter. Nobody's going to invest behind that. We obviously had just come out of the financial crisis. So that framed, I would say, a compelling need to do stuff. Whereas many companies face situations where there's no compelling need to do much else but what they keep doing and just do it better. So operationally improve rather than strategically change. So that was number one. In the particular industry that we're in, the investment banking industry and wealth management, investment management industries, I had had a view for probably back to the late 80s that one, wealth management businesses were vastly underappreciated largely because they'd not been very well managed. And if you could professionally manage them, there were enormous jewels to be polished. And two, institutional businesses, trading, putting your capital to work and supporting transactions, underwriting deals, while very attractive and glamorous, were so volatile by definition, they they became at times uninvestable. So, and the financial crisis actually proved that. The vast majority of pure institutional firms disappeared. In fact, the whole industry disappeared. I don't know if there's ever been an industry in history that gets wiped out by an event. Now, some of these so-called survivors, us and and Goldman Sachs, survived, but in a very different form. We became banks and regulated. 
So when you're confronted with that reality that a whole industry has effectively been wiped out, you remain in it in a survivor status uh, under a different you know, suit of clothing, meaning you're a bank now, not just a securities firm. So my, my sort of feeling around strategy was, was first, let's take stock of how bad this really is. We survived, but what would tip us again into catastrophic circumstances, number one. Number two, fundamentally, if we're going to have ballast to what I call the speed of the aircraft carrier, the ballast was from wealth and asset management. They better be big enough to actually give you ballast. And number three, even with that ballast, if you allowed the balance sheet intensive market and credit and liquidity risk intensive businesses to continue on their path without constraint, you might still blow it. So it was a combination of compulsion to act, build the ballast, control the extremes, and then sit back and see what you've got. So that was sort of the, the strategic birth of what we've really done in the last 14 years since the crisis, but right. 12 years I've been in the job. Right. It's interesting, as you've, as you've built out the ballast, you've obviously done a number of deals as well uh, with E-Trade, with Eaton Vance, uh, I think organically you've you've shown a lot of growth in the ballast uh if i'm not mistaken there was a recent public statement you might have made that you wanted to go from six and a half trillion to ten trillion in, in assets how have you worked the balance of get putting that investment in the ballast versus investing in some of the other other parts of the business well a lot of people mistook our strategy of we're going from a global investment to a global wealth and investment management we're not I said what we're doing is cleaning up the global investment bank. So it got back to that which it was revered for most of its 85-year history. We were always number one, two in the world. And we'd clearly dropped from that position. And then add to that cleanup. It was an additive strategy, not a replacement strategy. That's the fundamental misunderstanding. So if the additive strategy is going to work, then the investment bank cleaned up also has to be of size. So that's now 30 billion in revenue. And when I joined, it was probably, I don't know exactly, 15 or something. Wealth management and asset management when I joined were probably 7 billion or 6 billion. They're now 30 billion. Right, so you've got, yeah. So we've got 50-50. And years ago, when I was pressed on this, I said, I thought, again, the concept was Morgan Stanley's an aircraft carrier when the seas are really rough, we'll be just fine. My strategy is to be fine when it's really ugly. When the seas are great, everybody looks great and we'll be great. Others may be faster because they're not dragging the ballast through the ocean. Right. But because we've got that ballast, I know the seas are going to get rough. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The strategy actually outperforms when everybody's underperforming right. and it will happen. Right, right. So, the, and the, everybody said, well, how big does it have to be? I said, well, the rough rule of measurement in my mind is about 50-50. Now, you, don't get, you can get there by shrinking one. No, get there by adding the other. And hence, we had to do some deals to accelerate that or we'd be in a very long journey. So as you went through this process of building the ballast but continuing to invest in the core and, or the original core and, and, and building them up to this 50-50 place, what's the process that you go through? Is it you work this with your management team? You work this with your board? Do you have a small strategy team you work with? 
but just add to that also, you take over just as the crisis hits. Yep. And you have to make these sudden changes in businesses you haven't really led. How do you have the confidence to also make dramatic changes in that instance? I had no fear because <laughs> the so-called experts hadn't got it right. I think it's, to me anyway, strategy comes from fundamental beliefs about industry structure. And then you have some guiding principles around it. Whether others agree or disagree, it's not a democracy. Not everybody got an equal vote. And I had plenty of people telling me I were wrong. I didn't really care. And in fact, I said to one of them, okay, if I'm wrong, I'll fail. If I fail, I won't need to be kicked out. I'll walk out and maybe they'll tap you on the shoulder and you can run the place and good luck. But until then, we're doing it my way. <laughs> so one, you form a view, hopefully you're right about industry structure and where it's heading and basic industry behavior. I'll give an example a lot of people thought the wealth management advisory model was going entirely electronic. And I've had a view for 25 years since the mid-90s that that was wrong, that there was actually going to be a multi-channel model and ultimately that multi-channel model would merge into one institution. Mm -hmm. Institutions would have all channels. Schwab, for example, in the wealth space, built up the RIA business. Yeah. They could see exactly what I could see coming from the opposite direction. Right. You know, so you have to have fundamental views around, for example, with the capital treatment under CCAR, would trading businesses be viable? Could you actually generate enough revenues given the restrictions on balance sheet growth and so on? You could do it, but you needed to change the strategy, which wasn't balance sheet size, it was velocity of sheet. So there, there were solutions to a sort of fundamental industry structure. But then what I tried to do was step back and say, where is the catastrophic risk which could do us in if the next crisis comes? And in our business, it's almost all liquidity risk, right? You run out of money, you're right. dead. So solve for that. We solve for that. So it's more forming strategy from industry structure, fundamental views. You might be wrong. You hope you're not. Take catastrophic risk off the table. Where you see you have natural strengths, get very aggressive. Right. It's like playing poker. I love playing poker, played in tournaments. When you got the cards, I'm very aggressive. But you don't go all in unless you, you're probably, you never know if you're going to win. Somebody else may actually have a pair of twos and they flop two twos on the table. You're beaten by four twos. But if you're, the odds are way in your favor, get very aggressive. So it's a combination of, of being extremely conservative, managing against catastrophic risk, and extremely aggressive when you've got the cards. And that is very hard for most people to keep in their head. Most people bias towards being optimists or pessimists. Yeah. But you have to be able to do both, which is sort of the pragmatist. Now, I love that framing, by the way. Be extremely conservative on the downside risk, be, be incredibly aggressive on the upside. And be upside. able to do both yeah. at the same yeah. time. Yeah. So it's, and it's not a natural act for, for a lot of people. But then once you've sort of established that framework, Write out your strategy in simple language, which we did. And anything that comes to you that would take you off that strategy is fine. You might take it off, move, but then change what you're defining your strategy as. Don't get sloppy. Don't allow the organization to change without your intention. Be very intentional about it. And then you bring in the team, you test it. Okay, this is the basic architecture we're trying to pursue. What are the possible paths we could use to get there? Let's put option risk against each. Let's put payoff against each. Let's put time against each. Let's put execution against each. And that's when I tried a sheet to bring the team more broadly. But if you bring the team into a fundamental view of industry structure, 
right. think you shouldn't be in the job. You can be informed. You have conversations. Yeah, I have yeah, conversations yeah. with you guys. I have conversations with a lot of people. But behind it is a pretty strongly held belief, which can be, if it can be challenged and turned over, great, because you're wrong. Yeah. So you'll listen, of course. <laughs> Definitely yeah. listen. Yeah. Yeah. And, and ask people for their best shot. Right. Right. And and I heard a lot of people told us our strategy was wrong when we started on this post crisis, and they were they were very strongly held views. And I listened to them. I was appreciated the views, but ultimately made the call. And it's interesting to me. It, it feels like it's a little less about deep fundamental analysis. It's a little more of an understanding, as you put it, industry structure. And then some beliefs, and you bring it together. In yeah, I'd separate corporate strategy from business yeah, strategy. Absolutely, yeah. I always right. think about corporate strategy, for example, and we'll get into some of this stuff. How, how aggressively should we build out our workplace channel, a digital bank or not? How much do you invest in that versus buy it? You know, there are there are hundred different. Should we be in the middle market M and A space or not? There, you know, how big is our? What should our relationship with our Japanese partners look like in Japan? All of those are business unit strategy, which require deep analysis, a rich understanding of capital resource allocation, talent, things of that kind, and are fundamentally guided by you know another principle I have, which is don't do strategy by envy. Just because somebody else is doing something, I don't care. Some of our competitors have clearly taken different parts from us. I don't think they're right for us. They may be right for them. Good luck to them. Can we go down the path where you just led us, which is business unit strategy? So I, I think yep. you've beautifully laid out how you think about corporate strategy. How much do you as a CEO get involved in business unit strategies and all the related aspects of customer segment strategies, product strategies, digital strategies, etc. Is this something you spend much time on? Is there a lot of time you spend in reviews and the like? Just kind of in- intrigued as to how much you personally spend in that, in, in that time. Not overly. I mean, through the budget process, through the quarterly you know, performances. But generally, if I have a strong view in a business, my, my working assumption is that people running the business know more about it than I do. Full stop. Right. I have a bigger title. That doesn't mean I have a bigger brain or better experience or knowledge. Let the experts do their job. But when you, if you see underperformance, okay, you get more deeply involved. If you see strong performance, relative and absolute, you can stand back a bit. But I'll have a, a strongly held view. I have one right now about one of our business units, and I have a solution for them. And I said, here's my solution. And the reaction was terrible. You know, we don't like it. Basically, terrible idea. They were polite and said, oh, that's very interesting. We'll get back to you. <laughs> Actually, I think it's a terrible idea. I said, that's fine. I said, what's your answer? The problem didn't go away. And if, we don't, if you don't have an answer, we're doing my answer. So that then forces the wheels to more aggressively seek the answer. And then with that, with that more aggressive answer seeking, they'll come up with it better than I will, or at least as good, and then it's my view versus their view. So I think presuming you have the answers is a real weakness. Yeah, yeah. And the problem with being in these jobs a long time is everybody tells you you have all the answers. And it's very you know, comforting to your ego, yeah. and you get sucked into believing it, and that's very dangerous. And, and James, your involvement in business unit strategy over the course of your tenure, new CEO to now, has that changed, or was it always your mindset, even early on, to let, the, let them run with it and you'll challenge them? I think it was always my mindset. In the early days, I had a bunch of tutorials from people running businesses I didn't understand or had not been involved with or had no real knowledge of. 
to at least make sure I, I had a goodish to sort of solid good level of understanding. I'd never been expert. Right. So I think you've got to force yourself to get engaged where you can have the conversations. Emerging market risk, you know, something obviously every bank is thinking through their emerging market risk and particularly in the more volatile markets right now. That ought to be something I have a pretty good understanding of and can ask a series of questions. But then their level of expertise kicks it up a notch. You know, uh, uh, and you can help frame it. You can say, what is the, what, give me the, you know, one, two, three standard deviation of performance in XYZ country if things go bad. Okay, we've got that. Give me the number which if we wake up tomorrow morning and we've, we've done that to our P&L uh, where you feel sick in the stomach. Okay, they give me that number. Give me the probability that that number could happen. <clears throat> one in a thousand, one in 10, one in 42. Okay. You do not want to be the person walking in my office with that number. Your job is to mitigate it, insure against it, hedge against it, sell off the position, distribute it, bring it down a little bit. Now give me the revenues on that piece of the business for the last three years on average. Now give me an assumed return on those revenues. Now, if I look at that return versus that potential risk, now we're getting asymmetric. But you can't even ask those questions if you don't have a basic knowledge. Right, right. But you never as a CEO, I mean, we all grew up in different parts of the business and you will never know as much as the real experts. Yeah, yeah. Excellent. Related topic, resource allocation. So if you kind of think about whether it's capital allocation, expense dollar allocation, talent allocation, at least the conventional wisdom and some of the research we've done would suggest that those are big important decisions, right? When you bet in a particular business unit or particular area and you're kind of Go into your point. You're you're swinging hard where, the, where you really sense the opportunity. You're putting five, ten percent more relative every year relative to the prior year, and presumably having to starve some others to do that. How, how do you think about resource allocation? How involved are you? Do you leave this to your CFO, uh, others? First, ask the team what do they need to be successful. You're running risk management. I don't know. When I started, I think we had two hundred and seventy people in our risk organization. I'm sure we've got over a thousand now. Right. Because you can't go from A to Z in one step. Absolutely. So you've got you to leg your way into improvement and best-in-class performance. Because you could go to Z and bankrupt yourself, and then you've got That's nothing. Right. Or you bring in too many people, you can't train, bring in the culture, etc. So it's more I ask them, what do you need to be optimally successful, and what do you need to be currently on that path? Then you get the list, whether it's capital, access to balance sheet, um, resources, you know, f- financial resources, investments in the business, talent, and so on. <clears throat> then you add it all up. And you end up with an answer that is sort of price for perfection. The assessment I'm always trying to make is probability of upside, probability of downside, magnitude of upside, magnitude of downside. So something could have low probability of upside, but massive payoff. Or, or, you know, high probability of downside, but very little, very little damage. So you, you, tr- you have to calibrate size and, and propensity for, for outcome, probability of outcome. 
So then when you step back, you can say to the group, listen, our, our, the way we've constructed the organization for the next three years is dependent upon an environment which I think is unlikely not likely. Right. Therefore, we're going to have to take some chips off the table. Right. And I'd rather not do it in a simple everybody cut. Right. Let's try and we may get there. Unfortunately, if time isn't your friend, it catches up with you. That's why you see these bloody rifts in organizations. Uh, bloody not a profanity, bloody as in blood uh, on the floor from people having to cut. So let's try and avoid that by not putting ourselves in a position where if something bad happens, we'd really have to. Right. So it's more at that level of resource allocation. It's like, what can we afford? We're the bank. Come to us and, and draw down. Everybody's drawing down their money the same day. The bank doesn't have the money sitting there. It's lent it out to somebody else. You know, it's the Jimmy Stewart, wonderful life thing. Somebody right. else has got it in <laughs> yeah, their house. Exactly. We right. don't have all the money sitting right. here, yeah. Yeah. Mrs. Yeah. Smith. Yeah, right. exactly. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. And those must get tough, especially when acquisitions come into the mix and all of that. You've got to kind of play, play, play all of Everybody's that. Everybody's got a dream list. And also yeah. there's a yeah. capacity for how much the organization can absorb, what the state of mind of the board and the regulators and investors are about where you are in your trajectory, you can get too grabby. I mean, they're, you know, it's like a kid going to an ice cream store and having three ice creams. Right. They all look great when you're looking through the window, but you eat them, you don't feel so good. Yeah. <laughs> so you've got digestion problems. So we, we do, my job is to manage sort of the digestion issue right. and manage mm. the outcomes if things go bad issue and then let people go at it. And so I very delegate enormously, let them really go at it. Right. right. Until they underperform. We hope you enjoyed this first part of our conversation with James Gorman. In the second part of this podcast, James shares his experiences in managing Morgan Stanley's culture and working with the board. He also offers some candid reflections on how he maintains energy in an all-consuming job. As always, we'll share a transcript of this discussion on our Inside the Strategy Room podcast collection page at mckinsey.com slash ITSR, where you can also easily explore our extensive library of previous episodes. If you'd like to share feedback or an idea for a future podcast, please email us at insidethestrategyroom at mckinsey.com. Finally, if you'd like to receive alerts on our latest insights, you can sign up on our podcast collection page on mckinsey.com slash ITSR, follow us on Twitter at MCKStrategy, or connect with us on LinkedIn on the McKinsey Strategy and Corporate Finance Practice page. Thanks again for listening. We look forward to having you join us again soon inside the Strategy Room.